1: And tonight's chant will be the Song of the Precious Mir Samadhi, uh, but we're going to start with the repentance verse, which we chant three times. Song of the precious mirror Samadhi. Dharma of thusness is intimately transmitted by Buddhas and ancestors. Now you have it, preserve it well. A silver bowl filled with snow, a heron hidden in the moon. Taken as similar, they are not the same, not distinguished, their places are known. The meaning does not reside in the words, but a pivotal moment brings it forth. Move and you are trapped, miss and you fall into doubt and vacillation. Turning away and touching are both wrong. For It is like a massive fire, just to portray it in literary form is to stain it with defilement. In the darkest night it is perfectly clear, in the light of dawn it is hidden. It is a standard for all things, its use removes all suffering. Although it is not constructed, it is not beyond words. Like facing a precious mirror, form and reflection behold each other. You are not it, but in truth it is you. Like a newborn child, it is fully endowed with five aspects. No going, no coming, no arising, no abiding. Baba wa wa, is anything said or not? In the end, it says nothing, for the words are not yet right. In the illumination, hexagram, inclined and upright interact. Piled up they become three, the permutations make five, like the taste of the five-flavored herb, like the five-pronged vajra. Uh, Wondrously embraced within the real, drumming and singing begin together, penetrate the source and travel the pathways, embrace the territory and treasure the roads. You would do well to respect this, do not neglect it natural and wondrous it is not a matter of delusion or enlightenment within causes and conditions time and season it is serene and illuminating so minute it enters where there is no gap so vast it transcends dimension a hair's breadth deviation and you are out of tune now there are sudden and gradual in which teachings and approaches arise when teachings and approaches are distinguished, each has its standard. Whether teachings and approaches are mastered or not, reality constantly flows. Outside still and inside trembling like tethered colts or cowering rats, the ancient sages grieved for them and offered them the Dharma. Led by their inverted views, they take black for white. When inverted thinking stops, the affirming mind naturally accords. If you want to follow in the ancient tracks, please observe the pit sages of the past, one on the verge of realizing the Buddha way, contemplated a tree for ten kalpas, like a battle-scarred tiger, like a horse with shanks gone gray, because some are vulgar, jeweled tables and ornate robes, because some are wide-eyed cats and wide oxen. With his archer's skill, ye hit the mark at a hundred paces. But when arrows meet head on, how could it be a matter of skill? The wooden man starts to sing. The stone woman gets up dancing. It is not reached by feelings or consciousness. How could it involve deliberation? Ministers serve their lords. Children obey their parents. Not obeying is not filial. Failure to serve is no help. With practice hidden, function secretly, like a fool, like an idiot, just to do this continuously is called the host within the host. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the song of the precious mirror samadhi. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher, Maha Mahaprajapati. Our First Ancestor in China, Great Teacher Bodhidharma. Our First Ancestor in Japan, Great Teacher Eihei Dogen. Our First Ancestor in America, Great Teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The Perfect Wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. May all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas extend their compassion to the benefit and well-being of all sentient beings and to our great abiding friend, Thomas Cleary. May he find his true place in Buddha's way. All Buddhas throughout space and time... All honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, maha prajna Tonight's talk will be by Douglas. Good evening. Douglas. But Tygen is going to speak to the memorial dedication first.
2: So, um, hello, everyone. Um, I just wanted to say a little bit about Thomas Cleary, who passed away a week ago yesterday. Um, and anything I say doesn't even begin to touch how much he ha- he has done for us, um, translating the, the book, the book the Record, the book of Serenity, the, the huge Flower Ornament Sutra, uh, the entry into the inconceivable about Huayan, so many many other texts and some good Doken translations. Uh, he was uh, an amazing person, amazing mind. I had the good fortune to study with him in graduate school and took three courses. Um, and he was just as amazing a lecturer as he was a translator. Uh, we might say that uh, Kumara Jiva was the Thomas Cleary of China. Um, that uh, so much he he, don't, he not only translated Buddhist texts, he translated a wealth of Taoist texts. He translated um, things from Arabic, from uh, he translated Sufi texts. He translated Greek texts. Uh, he translated Sanskrit texts. Just um, an amazing mind and a. Um, a difficult, sensitive person who was very reclusive. Um, uh, so uh, uh, there's so much I could say. I'll, I'll just mention some of us are reading the Flower Ornament Sutra, the first uh, Friday evening of every month. Uh, uh, Cleary said, I took class in Huayan with him, and he said that he uh, recited the whole flower ornament sutra which is 1600 pages or so in his translation he recited it all in Chinese seven times before he started before he started translating it so um (laughs) those of us reading it once a month know how 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 long it is and uh, uh so he's been he's been a huge help to our practice and uh is sorely missed, and it's just a wealth of material that he gave us. So, anyway, I wanted to say that. Thank you, Thomas. Douglas, please.
3: I think you're muted, Douglas.
2: Good.
4: Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, I appreciate having. Uh, people I know in the audience makes it a little easier. I'd like to express my own gratitude to, for Thomas Cleary's work. I spent a good bit of time with the Book of Serenity, his translation of the Book of Serenity, his translation with his brother of the Blue Cliff Record, and his translation of uh, Wu Guang. And um, you know, they've been very helpful to practice. And and it's, um it's Thomas Cleary's translation of of uh, a koan from the Book of Serenity that is the pretext for my talk tonight. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about uh, case 48 from the Book of Serenity, Vimalakirti's non-duality. The case begins, Vimalakirti asked Manjushri, what is a bodhisattva's method of entering non-duality? Manjushri said, According to my mind, in all things, no speech, no explanation, no direction and no representation, leaving behind all questions and answers. This is the method of entering non-duality. Then Panjushri asked Vimalakirti, we've each spoken, now you should say, good man, what is a Bodhisattva's method of entry into non-duality?
3: Vimalakirti was silent. So uh, this is different from most koans, I think it's, um, I think it it takes a
4: certain amount of background to really understand it's, this is, the story itself is the climactic moment of the Vimalakirti Sutra. And uh, it's it's just a straight quote. Um, and without some understanding of the sutra and some of the issues involved, it's kind of hard to understand. And that that makes it a little different from most koans, I think. Um, but I think I think I chose it uh, just because of the reference to non-duality and wondering, okay, well, what's non-duality? Well, it's the opposite of duality. It's a, yes, that's right. It's a non-duality is uh, is our tendency to. Uh, View the world and ourselves in in, uh, terms that are dichotomies, and to uh, project those upon those uh, those concepts on the world in a way that's um, a fundamental pillar of the delusion that we are a fixed, discrete, independent, uh, abiding self. And so I wanted to think about that and understand why in this exchange, it appears that Mandra lost the exchange and was bested by Vimalakirti in his silence. So I, I think it would be he- somewhat helpful to provide background. Um, the uh, the Malakirti Sutra is
3: a Mahayana Sutra It's in the Prajnaparamita um, emptiness um, uh, family of scriptures. It's different from uh, most
4: sutras because Shakyamuni Buddha has almost no presence in it. It's mostly a series of conversations between um, Vimalakirti, who is a lay person and who is the most awakened of all of Shakyamuni Buddha's disciples? And his, so his conversation, Bhimalekuti's conversations with
3: uh, Shakyamuni Buddha's principal disciples, both arhats who have who have
4: become perfectly awakened, who have mastered and, and implemented Buddha's teachings, and
3: who are uh maybe once returners something like that and then bodhisattvas the major bodhisattvas
4: so uh talks to them so the sutra starts out in um in a garden uh, in uh the city of Vishali in India and the Buddha is there with uh 500 arhats and 32,000 bodhisattvas and hundreds of thousands of lay people, gods and goddesses, uh, demigods and magical creatures of all sorts. The one disciple who isn't there is Vimalakirti because he's sick at home in his house in Vishala. Uh So... Uh, Vimalakirti is lying there on his sick bed, and he thinks to himself, well, I'm pretty sick. I can't believe the Buddha hasn't sent anybody to check on me. The Buddha can read his thoughts, and so he he's going to send somebody to do it. So one by one, he he asks each of the 500 Arhats if they would go check on Vimalakirti, and he asks each of the Bodhisattvas, and now each one of them says, no, I really, really do not want to do that, because and there are a number of stories, but in each case, uh an arhat or a bodhisattva was explaining the dharma, preaching to um devas or other monks or lay people. And uh Vimalakirti showed up and said, Well, yeah, that's not quite it, is it? <laughs> and he starts talking about the Dharma on the point that that each of these monks uh, was talking about. And each of the monks was talking about his specialty in doctrine or practice. And Vimalakirti comes in and says, well, you know, it's not quite that way because you haven't really understood how non-duality works under these circumstances. And that's pretty, that's true for all of the discussions with the Arhats. That's true with most, a number of the conversations with the bodhisattvas although with the bodhisattvas he he not only talks about well maybe you don't understand non-duality and emptiness quite as much as a highly advanced uh, bodhisattva like you really ought to and i don't think you really uh, he doesn't quite say it, but he says look this is how you haven't really mastered expedient means here here's how the life of a bodhisattva works and he explains talks about expedient means he talks about the practice of the paramitas he talks about non-duality, and so on. So finally, after the Buddha has spoken to the 500 arhats and the 32,000 Bodhisattvas, each of them said, well, you know, I really don't want to do that because the last time I saw him, he embarrassed me pretty badly. The Buddha speaks to uh, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva's wisdom, and says, okay, Manjushri, would you please go check Vimalakirti and Madhusree says, "Well, I really rather not because he is so advanced that he really puts me to shame, and having a conversation with him is really tough. But if you want me to, I'll go see him. And since he's otherwise the most advanced of all of the arhats and the bodhisattvas, um, everybody else." The five, uh, the the arhats, the bodhisattvas, the demigods, the lay people, the demi, uh, the others, minor divinities, and other magical creatures say, "Well, we'll go too," and they all start going. So Vimalakirti figures out that um, they're gonna, they're all coming, and in order to make room in his house for this vast assembly, he. Could, he Magically converts the house to emptiness, and gets rid of and, and and literally empties it out at the same time. So there's sort of a Buddhist joke there because they're not the same. So he not only transforms the house into emptiness, so really there's no longer any inside or outside anymore. The the his house encompasses the entire world. So certainly there now because there, and so there's absolutely plenty of room for everybody to come. But he also magically snaps his fingers, I guess and all of the furnishings of the house disappear, and the doorman disappears as well. So now there's room for all these people to come. And they come, and there's a series of conversations between uh, Manjushri and Vimalakirti pretty much about um, about non-duality and emptiness. And there's a very amusing chapter about a conversation between traditionally the, the Buddha's most advanced... Arhat disciple of Shariputra and a and a goddess who lives in the house, in which she sort of runs circles around him, uh, because she knows all about emptiness and she's read her Lotus Sutra and she knows how to appear as a as a uh let's say a Hinnagyanist when she's speaking to people who need that kind of teaching and as a bodhisattva to the people who need bodhisattva teaching and so on. And uh she just uh leaves Shariputra speechless. And that happens a lot. It happens when when Vimalakirti was talking to uh, Shariputra before, and when he spoke to the other Arhats of Bodhisattvas frequently, they were just completely dumbfounded. They were so overwhelmed by what, he, by what he had to say, they couldn't speak anymore. So Shariputra's talking to the goddess and um, and he can't speak anymore. And she keeps talking and he finally, there's a, there's a fair amount of humor in. In, in the in the sutra. So, you know, Vimal, for example, Shariputra shows up at Vimalakirti's house and there's no furniture. So he starts complaining, well, where am I supposed to sit down? And the discussions are going on for a while in Vimalakirti's house with, uh, between Vimalakirti and Manjushri. And he's going, well, when are we going to have lunch? And so <laughs> he's talking to the goddess. And he's pretty impressed. I mean, she's run circles all around him and, and left him completely dumb, dumbfounded. He doesn't know how to, he, he really can't get his arms around this emptiness stuff. And he says, Well, you know, you're a pretty advanced
3: person. Why haven't you transformed your female nature? Uh, because, you know, traditionally, in, in in Buddhist cultures,
4: women cannot become enlightened, cannot become Buddhas. They have to be reborn as men in order to uh, follow the path to the end. And the goddess said, Well, I haven't transformed my female nature because, idiot, you don't really understand emptiness. There's no such thing as a female nature. We don't have a nature. And he doesn't understand. And she says, Okay, fine. What if a magician? were to conjure up an image of
3: a woman in front of you. Would you ask the image, this illusion, why haven't you transformed your
4: woman nature? And Chariputra says, well, no, because there's really no, no nature there. There's no woman there. There's there's no woman nature. And she goes, okay. And she performs a magic trick in which suddenly she looks exactly like Shariputra. He looks exactly like her. And he says,
3: and the goddess says, okay, why don't you transform your woman nature? And he can't do it. And she says, why
4: can't you transform your woman nature? And he says, well, you know, there's really no nature here. This is just an illusion. So I don't know what to do and she has mercy. It's kind of, the yeah, that's the point. Uh, and so he's trying, to, he's back.
3: And um, in the chapter then leading up to the scene with the koan, Vimalakirti
4: takes an, another run at all of the Buddhist disciples, The, the well, the bodhisattvas who've come. And he asks them to talk. He says, he asks the bodhisattvas, good sirs, please explain how the bodhisattvas enter the dharma door of non-duality.
3: And, you know, all 32,000 of them answer. And um, although not all of those, a fair number
4: of them are listed. And all of their explanations are extremely abstract and verbal. And conceptual you know so uh the bodhisattva Garbha declared duality is constituted by perceptual manifestation non-duality is object ob- objectlessness therefore non-grasping and non-rejection is the entrance into non-duality and the bodhisattva chandratara declared darkness and light are dualistic but the absence of both darkness and light is non-duality why At the time of absorption and cessation, there is neither darkness nor light. And likewise, with the nature of all things, the entrance into this equanimity is the entrance into non-duality. So after they're all done, Manjushri says, good sirs, you have all spoken well. Nevertheless, all your explanations are themselves dualistic. And then he recites the words that are in the Koan. To know no one teaching, to express nothing, to say nothing, to explain nothing, to announce nothing, to indicate nothing, and to designate nothing, that is the entrance into non-duality. And that's when he asks, Frima Kirti, okay, what have you got to say? What is what is the entrance into
3: non-duality? What is it, the entrance into um our fundamental nature, reality, when you uh, are not subject to this illusion of duality, and uh, Vimalakirti remains silent. So I think to understand uh, why uh, Manjushri
4: loses and Vimalakirti wins, and what that's got to do with us
3: we need to understand a little bit about what dualistic thinking is, this framework of, of,
4: um, binary thinking that we project upon the world
3: as if it were real, creating an illusion. Um, so, um, you know, literally, um, you know, non-duality, as I said, is that uh, thinking in dichotomies
4: and binaries. So some of the most common would be good or bad, like, dislike, inside, outside. The most significant one for our purpose in our lives is the difference between self and other. And even the self and we normally think of as part of ourselves.
3: I say self and our thoughts, self and our body, me and my my thoughts. Um, you know, we're we're used to this idea that, as Buddhists, anyway, we're used to the idea that there is no fixed self. That what we refer to as Douglas is,
4: you know, a combination of the five skandhas these systems of my body muscles bones blood vessels organs all sorts of juices and so on um and my thoughts so what's going on with this self that i keep feeling is there that where is that and what's it got to do with my body how does my how do i have thoughts how do I have a body? I seem to be separate from those, different from those, but I can't be completely separate from them because I'm gone when those are destroyed,
3: right? And those don't exist anymore. But we have that this sense that we are this uh, fixed, unchanging, uh, abiding, uh, independent self and that's how we perceive ourselves um and i guess the question is how does that happen um and i want to explain that that dualistic thinking and non and dual uh, the the problem with uh, dualism is not just thinking binaries. It's
4: the whole problem of chopping the world up into pieces conceptually. But for us, it really is largely um, dualities. Self and other, Self and my mind. Self and my attributes. Self and my actions. I take actions. Where are? Where am I you know that I'm taking these actions? How am I different from the actions that I'm taking? How am I different from this body? How am I different from this
3: mind? How does this whole illusion come up because that's the way that's the way um that the texts frequently refer to this i mean when they talk all the time about
4: delusion but they speak at least as often about illusion that this idea there's a self there's a douglas there that has an identity this has
3: there's been douglas since the day he was born he's changed he's still but he's still douglas um that's an illusion.
4: That's an idea that's projected on this body mind, these five skandhas, and it's a mask. It's a conceptual mask that prevents us from actually recognizing that whatever we call Douglas is just pointing at these the five skandhas that make up Douglas, and perhaps you know our, my relationships and. Uh, activities, my profession, things like all these things that I do,
3: my functions. Yeah, okay, fine. Those are Douglas, but they're none of those obviously are self either. Not in the way we feel about it. I mean you know, what if what if a little boy is standing in the middle of the street
4: and a bus comes out of nowhere and is about to run him over and I run in across in front of the bus. I grab the kid and I get over to the other sidewalk and neither of us is killed. Suddenly my picture is on the front page. Everybody's saying what a wonderful guy. You know who I'm going to be happy about that. I'm going to appreciate that. Well, is my body happy? Is my body what I'm happy about? Is, was it my mind that's some sort of a hero? No, it's Douglas who's this hero. Who is this Douglas who's a hero? Why is he feeling so good? Um,
3: the same sort of thing. You're walking down the street, you bump into somebody, and he turns around and says, "Pay attention, asshole." My reaction is to get angry. Well, who who just got insulted? Why? Who's feeling insulted here? Why is the what's happened here? Um, why is my mind? reacting with anger to an insult that, you know, from our traditional studying, we know
4: doesn't exist as part of the five skandhas. So, you know, what's going on?
3: How does this even start? And the answer um, for that, I have to sort of, I'm sorry. I hope I don't, uh, I hope I don't cause your eyes to cross too much. But I have to get into a little bit of um, Buddhist psychology and Buddhist theory of perception. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so, the sense of being a self, this conception we have of being a self, is
4: really, is really supported by three things the one is desire.
3: And one is attachment. You know, upadana is the word in Sanskrit. And upadana means literally means fuel. It's what keeps the fires of, of dukkha going. But it has, it has a range of meanings. So it could mean attachment. It means
4: clinging. It means apprehending. It means being caught up in something. It means getting fixated with something, being absorbed
3: with respect to some object of perception. And um, so here's how the process works. So we'll start with an example. Let's say it's in the morning, I wake up,
4: I'm groggy. I'm heading downstairs. The only thing that's keeping me going is the idea
3: that there's a cup of coffee waiting for me in the kitchen. So I go into the kitchen, and my eyes
4: are struck by light bouncing off my coffee cup, red-white
3: Thorvald's cream of lutefisk soup cup. It's full of, of coffee, so I... I Receive this light. This light, and I
4: can smell coffee. I don't know it's coffee. Yet. I have this naked sensation olfactory sensation. This uh, I perceive
3: this light. See, that's part phase one. Phase two. Uh, I recognize that there's sort of a feeling tone here. Haven't really understood
4: quite what it is but there's something positive there it could be positive it could be negative it could be neutral but smell it you know coffee gives me i i have a positive response to it and my
3: mind looks at it and on a preliminary basis based on my past history says it's a cup of coffee okay and this is what coffee is like Something you're going to drink, and so on. the the um, The action really begins in the next phase, when because you've had
4: this positive feeling tone at perceiving the cup of coffee,
3: you generate desire, and the desire causes you to grasp this object that hasn't really been perceived yet, but really zero in on it, focus on it, grasp it. And that triggers, that desire and that attention triggers uh, associations from your subconscious. conceptual association first hey that's a cup of coffee i like coffee this is colombian coffee all about everything you know about coffee it triggers um in uh, that that uh recognition now now i've really perceived the cup of coffee i know and i
4: know what it is i know that it's a positive thing, and that actually, the the fixation of my attention on the cup of coffee and the con- conceptualization, I also sort of grasp the conceptual understanding that this is a cup of coffee as well, and that there's it does increase each other. And at the same time, other things bubble up. So I've had desire bubble up. I've had the the. Conceptual understanding of this is what this is. This is a cup of coffee. um, And emotions, hooray, it's a cup of coffee. I'm really going to like
3: this. Um, And intentions. I'm going to drink this cup of coffee. And also, the impulse
4: to drink the cup of coffee comes up. So I reach out and I take the action of drinking the cup of coffee. All right. That's the scene. And the problem of dualism and dualistic thinking arises because each time there is an instance of desire and thought and um, sensation and emotion and intention and action, there's an object. I'm, paying, I'm focusing on the cup of coffee. I'm thinking about the coffee. I, the, there's an object. It's the cup of coffee. Cup of coffee is the object of the
3: of the desire of the thought of the emotion of the intention of the activity, and in each case, our dualistic thinking says, okay, there's an object It's the
4: receipt, the recipient or the the object of of this activity,
3: and there's a subject too. that's you, Douglas so that is where the idea has come up. Uh, just a label has popped
4: up that takes form because now we associate it with my thoughts and desires and emotions and actions and intentions and so on. All of this happens almost instantaneously. So in real life, if you're, even if you're sitting on the cushion, I'm sorry, You're not going to be able to track this. And and, um, phases one and two are before you've even perceived the cup of coffee and are conscious of anything. Sure, the desire, the thinking, the emotion, having an intention, taking an action, all of those you're going to perceive. You may not. Some of that activity can also be subconscious, but some of it is. And that sensation of being a me, that that is certainly there. So all of these impersonal processes, really sort of um,
3: reflexive processes, responses to um, stimulus, um, have generated this sense that there's a personal self, me, who's behind it all. And we do that Countless times, instant death, you instant, all day long. There's an I, there's an I, there's
4: an I, there's an I, there's an I until, you know, we've done this all our lives, maybe for zillions of lifetimes before this. And we internalize the identity that there is an eye, there is a Douglas here. And that's what leads to the bad aspect of having this self, having this shadowy self this sort of ghost back there that can never be perceived it can be sensed i have a sense that i'm there
3: there's a there's a me there i'm never going to perceive it i'm never going to actually apprehend it so there's a certain
4: amount of insecurity there i'm concerned about insecurity and i have and there's anxiety around that about injury illness death
3: Loss of, of uh, regard by other people, um, uh, embarrassment, shame. Um, and at the, so at the same time, you're
4: doing everything you can. And, and so there's anxiety there. And at the same time, you're reaching and reaching
3: and reaching, feeling the need to satisfy, to make yourself secure, to make yourself um gain respect, gain status, whatever. Um, But there's a lot of suffering built
4: into that, a lot of stress and strain. And so that's where we get to the point uh, that, uh, you know, and I'll back up and just say, so there's this psychological phenomenon where our sense of self arises. It's also the social convention, right? Where everybody recognizes that's Douglas. This is who Douglas is. Um, This is what I expect of Douglas. Douglas is a person. Douglas
3: has this this identity. Um, And so we internalize that as well. And because we've had this sensation of being this fixed, separate, Self, detached from, detached, certainly detached from the world, um, detached from this body and so on. We also are um, self centered, selfish. Um, it's all about me, 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 and my interests without much regard
4: for the suffering and, and interests of other people. And maybe even in order to advance my own self-interest, I'm willing
3: to um, act at the expense of others. So if you've got this conceptual problem, you can see why Manjushri
4: said, well, Bodhisattva, you're not going to get rid of this idea of Having concepts which create this idea that there's a fixed self and a fixed reality by using all these concepts.
3: It's that's dualistic. It's just not gonna work. But you know, I think I think uh and you know, I uh, will just
4: read it one more time What Banjushri says his position is on on the gateway to reality is non-duality. You know, it's uh No speech, no explanation, no direction, no representation, leaving behind all questions and answers. This is the method of entering duality. I guess at worst, you could say that that's still pretty conceptual. At best, I'd have to say he's still saying, "Okay, don't think, don't feel, don't judge, etc., which unfortunately, because this is a problem, this is not possible. We're not interested in turning ourselves into trees that don't have
3: minds and consciousness, but we can't, because these are generated by our personal karma. When
4: we reach the right stimulus, it triggers these responses of
3: these this focus and 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 desire and and concepts. So we get to Vimalakirti and his solution. So I mentioned that that uh, that multiple times across the sutra, ahats and bodhisattvas couldn't speak because they were just overwhelmed by Vimalakirti's uh, thinking and eloquence. Is that what's going on? Has Vimalakirti
4: been overwhelmed by Manjushri? No, I, I, I clearly don't think so. Is it, is it that Vimalakirti is making the point that reality and the dharma are so ineffable, ineffable that there's no way to capture them in language? I don't think so either. I think what's going on here
3: is that Vimalakirti is actualizing. He is... Realizing the
4: door to non-duality. What is he doing? He's just sitting there. He's doing zazo. If our problem with creating a false self, self and the, which isn't, and the craving that's in, inherent in that, and the suffering that's inherent in that, the I mean, desire is
3: craving, which is frustration, which is anxiety, and um what do we do? Um, and I think there's a phrase that I know: Yozan lights. If you've found your, find, you've dug yourself into a hole. Stop digging. And that's what Vimalakirti is doing. And that's what that's what Zazen is. If our sense of self and our clinging and our suffering arise from desire and focus and thinking, then what can you do but to sit down, and, and if it's clinging
4: to, if if your problem of the self arising and it cl- is that you're clinging to these, you're attached to them, you're caught up in your thinking and your desire,
3: then what do you do? You sit down, and you let all of the mental activity go. You're not attached to it anymore. You sit, no method, there's not a technique. You sit and you allow uh, desire and thoughts and emotions, judgments, all the rest of it, to come and go,
4: arise and fall without interference, without, att- without any attempt to suppress them or to encourage them. And if the intentional uh intention and action is also creates a sense of self because now I'm an actor, I'm intending to do this, I am the cause of, of I'm behind causing myself to reach out and drink this cup of coffee, then
3: you have to abandon volitional activity at all and just sit. Not sitting there, not acting. It's not you, you've passed beyond. Don't act. No, don't take any intentional activity or act. It's just you're not doing anything. At that point, as Dogen would say,
4: right? You've taken the backward step that shines the light within, and you see your original face before you immediately. You see your original face before you imposed this framework
3: of self and other, this and that, like, dislike, and so on. They haven't gone away. But they are not binding us. We're not resisting the thoughts which would create more of the same
4: problem. We're just sitting with reality, whatever that includes. And that includes our
3: deluded desires, thoughts, emotions, and intentions um going, uh,
4: arising and falling, coming and going without our intervention at all.
3: And that is just sitting is the doorway to non-duality and to our freedom. So I'm going to leave it there. And I'm sure people have something to say. Thank you. Well, there are dualities of speech and non-speech, too. I guess we could. <laughs>
4: Which one are we going to do? Wade?
3: I'll I'll actually defer to
1: Ruben. Um, I feel like I...
3: <laughs>
1: you had your hand up. I mean, I did. <laughs> but then yours was there, and it was so pretty. <laughs> I Well, I appreciate that, but I talk entirely too much. And, and All right, well, I don't agree, time. but I will go. Thank you. Um, Douglas, thank you for your talk. Um, there was a moment when you said, uh, "The self is a mask," and at first I heard that the self is a map, and I was like,
4: "Yes, (laughs) totally a map." And then he said, "He said mask, idiot."
1: (laughs) (laughs) But like I just was like, like my mind went down this like seeing how like this self is totally a map. Uh, of like it's it's not in high enough resolution, and it ha- tells me I get these ideas of how things should be and how they relate, and like almost this this sense of um, these directions that are incomplete and
5: out of date. <laughs>
4: well, and and that's it. I mean, uh, right? You know, it, that sense of self—it's an abstraction.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Not,
4: it, it, there is no relationship to reality. What's really there? Um, it's an abstraction because there's no content to it. Right. It's just, there's a self there. What is it? I don't know, but it's there. I can <laughs> feel it there. Um, and it's so, nope. so there's, there's that dichotomy between what's really there and what you can perceive with your senses, partly, and your idea about, you know, you can see Douglas and talk to Douglas and interact with Douglas, and then you have your idea of Douglas and that includes Douglas is Douglas's Douglas' Douglas. is a self. Douglas has been Douglas for 68 years now. No matter the fact that, you know, he's run through every cell in his body 25 times or whatever it is.
3: That you could uh, you know that Douglas could have uh, you know shoulder
4: replacement surgery. He'd still be Douglas, even though there's a pretty major change to his body. You could maybe theoretically take Douglas's mind and stick it in some sort of chamber without his body. Did you ever see the movie about, you know, having Hitler's brain in the? No? Okay. But, yeah, but you're there. So Douglas would still feel like Douglas. There's no body. He's just sitting there with this disembodied mind, still thinking he's Douglas. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. So kind of like a map. Except that a map at least has some relationship to something. And it has some utility, you know.
1: I mean, I'm not a very good map maker, Maker Douglas.
3: (laughs) But the idea of self doesn't really map to anything. So it's a very strange thing. Thank you. Thank you.
1: We're debating who should say that thing
4: first. Yeah. I mean, it's up to me, Mike. Please.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, Douglas, who would you, who
6: would you like to call on?
4: <laughs> Mike. <laughs>
6: uh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for um, wonderful talk. Um, when as you were telling the story, um, in my head I, I was making a movie about it, and I would love to have a movie about that whole story. The way you told it was so animated and so humorous and so wonderful. Uh, be Delightful, um, when I was a kid i I used to th- and I think for whatever reason, I used to think that i like i wasn't me, I was like a robot, and like I was a little bug inside, kind of controlling and like moving my arms and like doing all these things was uh, how I perceived myself sometimes um, and you know talking about this idea of perception, I was thinking I went back to that and it made me think of that. And also made me think about um, like how we perceive color, for example. And so like, you know, red is like light reflecting on something and it hits this object and then it bounces into our eyes in a certain way. And so red is just, you know, a process that's happening. But like, is it really red? And so like as a kid and still it's like, you know, I wonder it's like do we all see the same red because like we're all have different eyes and so it's like, and we can all see light a certain way. So I'm like, is there, a, is there actually like a red or have we all just like communally agreed as a society that like red is this, you know, or things like that? I'm like, okay, I guess this is red. Um, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but your the whole idea of like this, um, perception, um, made me think of that. So
4: there. yeah. Yeah. I have, that's sort of beyond my expertise. I mean, there's plenty of Buddhist writing about epistemology, right? But the idea, you know, there's a lot of, I think, bad writing, Western writing about Buddhism and, and Zen with the idea that, okay, you're gonna step outside your thoughts and you see the world uh, without any conceptions being imposed on it. So you'll see the world the way it really is. And you go, really? Really? You're gonna see the world through sensory input? i'm gonna see these i'm gonna see what's really behind these light rays which have been reflected in some way and go through my um, it, it hit my uh retina, this slightly curved but essentially flat thing and are converted into electrons that cause chemical reactions that run up into part of my brain where it's processed who knows how and subject to all sorts of preconceptions about what the world is. And that's really, I'm seeing the world as it is. No, I don't think so. Um, You know, and and I understand there are all sorts of things that scientists have about imperfections, you know, whatever, only 30% of your retina actually perceives color that there's a blind spot right in the middle of your retina. So what when you look out at the world, you're sort of, Reconstructing what's supposed to be in that hole that you're not, that you isn't receiving any stimulus, things like that. So you start to go, no. And that's not what, that's not what awakening is, right? The awakening is to drop a see through and, and let go of this per- perception, this
3: apprehension, this sense of being a self.
2: Nyozan has his hand up.
5: Thank you. Um, thanks, Douglas. It, it, really interesting talk. Um, one of the things you noted is, well, two things. You know, one, um, the Vimalakirti um, didn't answer the question. He 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 demonstrated something, right? But what he demonstrated in his silence i'm not sure i can get to this you you also said about zazen that when we engage in zazen that um uh all the things that go on continue to go on judgments aversions desires is still fully in place what's shifting a little bit is how we uh interact with that and so my question is 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 like Presumably, um, when Virmala Kirti enters Zazen, the same thing is true. Judgments, you know, Madhushri, I really thought you would do better. You know, all this stuff um, is likely to be there. And so so my question is, and, and it's, it's probably not a fair question, it's probably not even a good question, but it is a little bit of confusion. So... So, how does the the moment of simply not opening your mouth uh, fundamentally alter things? You know, in any case, we've got this profusion of mental activity, and we're told—not um, universally. I mean, there there's this there's the whole school of there's a whole side of Zen, there's a whole side of Buddhism that talks about getting rid of thought, suppressing thought, and all that kind of stuff. But we're not taught that, and I don't think any of us believe that. Is there a question there you can respond to? Do you get when I'm getting at it all or? <laughs> You're muted again, Douglas. Noble silence.
3: <laughs> He's attempting no I, speech.
4: I keep uh, losing My connection keeps going in and out and I and mute muted every time i come back. Um yeah, the that all that um all that continues of course, but you allow it to come and go without being attached to it so that um you step back, you step out of it. And in that ex- to that extent, you know, i mean it's the sort of thing of Dogen talking about, you know, you about sitting um that this sitting in, you can sit with enlightenment and delusion at the same time. And that, and you're transcending enlightenment and delusion and that kind of sitting by letting it, letting it go. Letting it go, you know, it sounds like it's so active. Okay. Let go, let go, let go. And it's not, right? It, this is, it's not willing yourself not to hold on. It's just not digging anymore in the hole. Not
5: carrying yourself forward, I think is not one carrying way
4: to yourself say. forward, yeah. And being you know, in the ten thousand things have just uh
5: supported. So after us. after Vimalakirti has uh made his thunderous demonstration and it's time to actually like you know, pull out the tea and coffee, um can he drink the coffee dualistically or is at that point or non-dualistically or is at that point is, are you just back in it? Are you, are you just back? This is the old question of what happens after after the moment of Zazen, if anything.
4: Yeah. I think that first I, w- I want to say one thing. I mean, conceptual thinking is inherently dualistic, right? Because it always chops the world up into things. So if you have Douglas, there's no meaning to Douglas, even, even aside from some sort of conceptual understanding, but even as some sort of pointer or sign indicating this body mind, there's no meaning unless there are other things, but it's not, it's not always a problem and it doesn't always lead to suffering. So, hmm. you know, I come down in the morning we we'll go back to breakfast. I come down in the morning. I want to make breakfast. I recognize that there's a kitchen counter here and there are knives and spoons and bowls and so on but that's not a problem because i'm not clinging there's no desire related to my perception and interaction with those things um i think that part of our practice is you know we stand up off the cushion and um we continue to act think and act to the extent we can, in a non-grasping manner. um, Letting go of thoughts and feelings except as necessary to perform this specific task. Um, Some thought will be necessary, but I think we can convert it into non-delusional, non-dukkha duality, dualism.
5: Okay, I'll stop after this one because I don't want to dominate things, but, um, you know, you just said, you just mentioned, you know, respond, reacting to the kitchen counter, or all these things without desire and so on. But, for the whole discourse that you presented about the Skandas, you know, was about how the very act of putting a world out there is, is grasping, right? And that, and that in the act of grasping, you know, we're grasping both an object and itself. So, I don't know. I'm just. I'm just. You know. I, I think I'm pushing you for a kind of uh, consistency that I've never been able to articulate. So you can ignore it. But there's just an issue there. You know. I
4: think. I think the answer is what I was trying to reach for is there's du- dualistic thinking and dualistic thinking. There's dualistic thinking with with grasping and desire, and there's dualistic thinking which is inherent in the fact that you're there's. Conceptual understanding of your situa- a conceptual response to a situation,
5: but so we're demonizing, uh, we're, you know, we're kind of like we're, we're, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, it, it, this, this is just you're, you've obviously captured something I struggle with a lot. Um, you know, we're talking about this particular set of relations, you know, reactions we have to conceptualization, mm-hmm. and then, and then, you know, now you're positing sort of a non grasping, uh, non. Desire inflected, uh, way of moving through the kitchen and relating to the kitchen counter and so on and so forth. But the whole thing, the whole prior thing to that was that upadana, there's grasping even, even, you know, you know, the starts, the process gets started even before the level in, you know, in that sequence that you were talking about that you even have awareness. So anyway, I don't know. I should yeah. stop. I, I, we're not going to dig my way out of this. <laughs> I keep trying.
4: Uh, yeah, I think that I think the answer again is is whether that the clinging is is subject to the existence of desire. Clinging is just an extension of de- is not just, but it is an extension of desire. And if you can let go of desire. There isn't the clinging. You're not attached to it. You're not lost in it. You're not living inside the desire in this world that's created in that way. You're sitting there then li- alive with um, that activity going on in the background. I think you can even step outside of your desire and recognize that that's what you want. You could have desire without... without uh, grasping. Is it so? Maybe a distinction. You can have desire without craving. If craving is desire plus grasping, Atta- desire plus attachment, I think you can have desire without attachment.
2: Again. I don't disagree with anything you said, Douglas. I could try and say it a different way which might be helpful and might not be helpful and whatever. But <clears throat> one way to look at it is the, is in terms of the teaching of the two truths, which doesn't have to be dualistic. So this is, there's a, a non-duality beyond duality and non-duality that Dogen talks about, but that aside, um, just um, to be aware that conventionally there's a kitchen counter and there's cups and there's silverware and so forth. Um, and you know that ultimately it's all what created by the mind or it's all a product of this delusion of subject and object uh the, so one way to the way you were talking about it was not being caught by craving. another way to talk about it is um uh just not to not to be caught period yeah not not to not to uh not to uh, hold on to some belief about the subjectness of subjects and the objectness of objects or vice versa. So to be able to just proceed with, uh, making a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, that's just another, another attempt to try and, uh, respond to Neosan's dilemma. Um, Whatever it's worth. Did Wade have a question back there?
1: I think I think I'm going to keep the train rolling and and defer (laughs) it. He just put his hand up.
2: Jason,
7: then. All right. Um, Well, thank you for your talk, Douglas. Um, Your cup uh, is kind of incredible. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it fits in kind of awkwardly perfect for this discussion. I, I when I first saw it, I thought it was one of those Andy Warhol mugs that you can get at any museum. But um <laughs> when you actually read the text, I had to take a quick break from what you were um talking about to look it up to see if that is an Andy Warhol painting. And I couldn't find any research. It's I don't think he did a Ludafisk Uh, can painting? I don't think so. No. Um, You have to go to Minnesota to buy them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's good to know. I found one on eBay at least. (laughs) Um, But uh, so that got me on this other train of thinking about Andy Warhol and in one of his first interviews when he kind of becomes a rock star artist and makes pop art what pop art is, um, the interview the interviewer is asking him all these questions. And regardless of the grammar uh, or the responsiveness to this interviewer's question, he just says, no, 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 no. (laughs) But one of the very last questions, she finally asks him something about pop art, and he says, yes. Um, And it just made me think, well, maybe right then and there, Andy, to think about the Vimalakirti Sutra, that's a really, like, he was being Vimalakirti right there, because pop art, at least idealistically, is supposed to be 100% non-dual. So, I just thought of Andy Warhol in that moment being Vimalakirti, uh, actually teaching a lesson on non-duality. So, thanks for your Minnesota <laughs> bit of this stuff. Thank you.
3: Wade, you're going to talk after all.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, unless unless Amina has something to say. <laughs> um,
0: I, I've had lots of different thoughts, but I don't know. I think we've, like, they're back there somewhere, like in the earlier <laughs> part of the discussion. Uh,
1: I, I don't really have anything um, new to, uh, just to dispel the mystery because you're all dying to know what I've been. Uh, <laughs> basically, I'm kind of asked it already is, um, like, I won't I won't have the hubris to say that I understand the emptiness teachings, but they do make sense to me. Uh and and non-duality is part of that. Um, but I guess my question is like what do you do with it? Like where does the when the rubber hits the road, um, other than Sitzazin, as you as you said. But like at some point the bell rings um and you have to go up and do stuff and we can the you, the discussion about the kitchen counter is interesting. Um, but how does, how does that help me relate to kitchen
5: counters actually, actually, right? Like, what do you do with the emptiness teachings? It seems like concepts, (laughs) ironically.
4: I think the answer is that, that the concepts can only disclose the problem and can write
3: a, um, prescription what the solution is, and the solution is to sit zazen and learn to let go. And uh, so that's, that's the utility of the
4: emptiness teachings, and they're kind of fun to read about. But reading emptiness teachings, I don't think will do a whole lot to change your life. Certainly not a whole lot to change your experience of your life or ease your suffering. For that you have to embody the teachings by embodying letting go. Um, And that is, you know, a lot of that, I think it, it comes down to not being stuck, not getting stuck in conceptualization, not grasping thoughts and ideas and learning to, learning to respond from a place other than conscious thinking everything through. In the same way, you're not, when you're sitting in, I'm sorry, I'll be right with you. I mean, in the same way, when you're sitting Zazen, you're not, you should, you know, sometimes you do, but you don't intentionally sit there and explain Zazen and what you're going to do in Zazen to yourself. You just have to not do it. <laughs> so.
1: That's, that's uh, as good an answer as I could possibly expect. Thank you.
4: Sure. Amina, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: No, sorry, I was kind of jumping the gun there. Um, it. I mean, Wade's question kind of made me think about, and actually the end of your talk also made me think about a talk that Niozan gave a few weeks ago that, um, you know, where he, he was talking about Zazen. At, you know, I think, like, there was this question of, like, like, what do you do when you, like, leave the cushion, you know? And that it's not so much that, like, you get there through thinking or through like some action you're going to do, but that sitting Zazen is enough, you know, like that, or maybe it can be, you know, that, that it's not that, yeah, like you're not going to get there. You're not going to get there through thinking or, you know, and that, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm making that, that kind of connection to Neozon's talk, but also just like what you said about, or, you know, just thinking about um, like no speech, like not talking. and I, and I think about myself and about how, I often feel like I get into the most trouble through speech, you know, like through talking to like every year at new year's, my resolution is to not talk as much. And then I not, and it's not that I'm talking constantly, but sometimes I do, or I say something I shouldn't say. And um, I hardly ever meet that resolution, but um, I don't, there's something relieving to me just to think about um, not trying to do anything through thinking, but sitting Zazen and, and, seeing what that does for you. I don't know. Or Not that it's supposed to do something for you, you know, with this goal. But anyway, some of what I, I'm thinking about.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm available to talk about this more and to hear what you think about it. I'm willing to meet for coffee and that sort of thing. So don't hesitate to let me know you'd like to think about it. I, I, I thought uh, this was a great, time to really try and get my head around this topic a little better. And uh, I've appreciated it.
2: Wade, maybe we can do the four bodhisattva vows and close.